This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Writers on a New England Stage brings acclaimed authors to the Granite State to discuss their lives and recent works. And earlier this fall, NHPR's Hannah McCarthy spoke with Huma Abedin at length about her memoir, Both And, A Life in Many Worlds. This conversation was recorded before a live audience at the Music Hall on September 27th. everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here tonight. It is a pleasure and privilege to be here. And thank you so much, Huma Abedin, for joining us tonight. I am so glad that you are here. Now, first things first, you know, I host a show called Civics 101. I always try to get out the question right off the bat of what someone does for work. Now, you spent so much of your career in this all-consuming public service job. What are you doing right now? <laughs> Well, I'm having a really good time. Uh, let me start with that. Um, first of all, I, I, I'm having definitely an emotional moment being here because um, for those of you who knew who I am or know something about my life, I've been in politics for the last decade, 25 years, 26 in September. And when the gentleman picked me up at the airport in Boston, he's like, have you been to New Hampshire before? And I almost... <laughs> said, I think I've spent more time in New Hampshire than I have in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I was born. Definitely have, by the way. Um, so I'm thrilled to be here. I've, I've been on, um, on this book tour, this journey for the last year, and um, I have to say, walking into this beautiful music hall, and I just want to thank um, Jim and, and Tina and everybody at the music hall and the New Hampshire Public Radio to, for ha hosting me and having me here um, tonight, because it's... Um, it's really wonderful to be in this beautiful space and place. Uh, what do I? What am I doing right now? Okay. Well, <clears throat> aside from being here with us, for which we're aside grateful. from being here with you, I'm able to uh, find a little more rebalance in my life. I'm a mom of a 10-year-old, uh, going on 17-year-old <laughs> little boy. It goes by very quickly. Um, we just uh, uh, optioned the book. Um, uh, to be made into a television series. So Frida Pinto is making it into wow. a show. Um, and I'm, I'm actually flying to Los Angeles tomorrow and um, for a few other things. But um, so I'm very excited about that sort of turning because I, I know a lot of people, I used to love to read when I was little. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but I know a lot of people won't read the book and might watch it uh, on the screen. So I'm excited about that. And I'm working on this production company um, with Hillary and Chelsea. Uh, we just uh, had two projects. We have lots of projects going on, but this has really become a new passion project. Um, and so one is called Gutsy, and it's on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. Some of you may have already watched it, but it's, it's, it was based on a book that Hillary and Chelsea wrote, and I was one of the producers uh, for this show. And really, for me, this notion of shifting from politics and public service um, after the you know 2016 election, kind of this forced kind of shift to sort of reimagine what you're going to do when you grow up. At least that's what I've had to do, and so it's shifting a little bit to storytelling and 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 really enjoying it and and figuring out you know what else I want to do in my life. And I'm lucky to have a lot of opportunities. Mm. I have to ask: Is the television show that you've just optioned is it going to be documentary style or is it? No, it's a scripted series. Wow. So it's going to be is someone uh, playing you. 
Yeah, Frida Pinto. Oh, that's Frida oh, that's, Pinto is going to play me. Um, she's this extraordinary um, actress who I'd actually never met and um, wasn't familiar with. But for those of you um, uh, uh, who watched Slumdog Millionaire, it was this beautiful uh, film. Uh, she's the young actress in it, and now she's a producer and you know creator and director. And I'm, uh, it was very important to me that a woman and a, a, a diverse woman. Uh, you know, take the story and, and bring it to screen. So, yeah, we're very excited. Yeah. W were you present at her in uh, her auditions, I mean to say? Was I present at her auditions? Yeah. No, I mean, she just, she bought the book. She optioned Oh, wow. It. Oh, great. Okay. She's going to produce it yeah. and make it. Yeah. And be in it. So, yeah, it's very oh, exciting. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. That's lovely. Now, one of my favorite parts of this whole book is the beginning, which I actually thought was all too brief, a description of your childhood. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You were born there. And then um, shortly thereafter, you were transplanted to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And I, I was reading through your book, and at a moment, I put it down, and I murmured to myself, this woman comes from remarkable people. Um, for those in the audience who perhaps have not read your book or don't know your story, who are your parents? You know, I open uh, the book um, really uh, as an homage to my great-grandmother. And because every time I think of a moment, and tonight's one of those moments being in this historic place, um, really feeling honored that so many of you showed up to hear me tell my story. Um, every time I've slept at Buckingham Palace or been on Air Force One or been in these insane kind of incredible meetings with kind of leaders of the free world and just thinking, wow, how did I get here? I really owe it to my great-grandmother. And um, she was uh, living in India, in Hyderabad, India at the time, and she was eight and woke up one day and goes to her parents and said, I want to go to school, I want to be educated. And her parents, back then, you know, in you know, an upper-middle-class family, girls were not sent to school to be educated. You, you learned at home. You learned math so you could, you know, operate your finances in your husband's household. You learned poetry and you, you know, you learned how to read, but like nothing beyond that. And, you know, she walked in, you know, to her parents' bedroom and said, I, I demand to go to school like my brothers and my, my male cousins. And, uh, and her parents said, we can't allow this. Like it, a girl leaving home every day will bring shame on the entire family. And so you can't, but long story short, she was so adamant. I often wonder about what it was in that pit of her stomach, what gut instinct this little girl had that she knew being educated would change her life. She cut a deal with her. Her mother actually supported the idea of her going to school, but her, her father took some convincing, and he, she basically cut a deal with him. And he said, so long as you leave from the rear of the house in a covered ox cart, so that people will not see that a girl leaves the house every day and brings shame on the family, you can go to school. And she did go to school, and she graduated from high school and raised a daughter, my grandmother, who was the first woman in our family to go to university. And my grandmother raised five girls, including my mother, all of whom, like, the minimum education they have is PhDs or a medical degree. I mean, they went on to live these extraordinary lives and give us this opportunity. And I, so, so much of it is really um, my, my grandmother and then my parents. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I opened the book with a letter uh, my father had uh, written. My, I'm, I'm a product of two immigrants, an Indian father, a Pakistani mother, and, you know, you will now not be surprised to hear that for us, in, for them, really, education was a religion. 
Um, they uh, were Fulbright scholars and they came to the United States in the 60s and they met at the University of Pennsylvania. They were both meant to go back to their home countries to marry people they were betrothed to, but they fell in love and they got married and they um, moved. Uh, my father was a political scientist, my mother uh, is a sociologist, and they said, well, we'll move where we both can get jobs. So we um, moved to Michigan, which is um, where I was born. And when I was two, and this is one of the first lines that I wrote in the book when I sat to write, when I was two, my father was diagnosed with renal failure. And um, in 1977 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, essentially the doctor said to him, you should, you know, you probably have five to 10 years uh, so you should get your affairs in order. Um, and I think about it, and my father was my age when, um, you know, now, my age now, when he was given this diagnosis. And it's one of the first, it was the first line I wrote when I sat down to write the book, which is my father was told he was dying. And so he went out and he lived. And um, two months later, we moved to Saudi Arabia for a one-year sabbatical. And we just embarked on this great adventure, Hannah. I mean, it was this, my parents were so curious about, you know, one of the things they really wanted us to, number one, even though my father always said, you know, your eyes are at the front of your head for a reason, is to look forward. He really wanted us to learn history and learn about other cultures and places and spaces. It's why the book is called Both And. I mean, this notion of you can be both and. My parents came from two countries that were at war. And India and Pakistan, they couldn't go back and live there, which is why they got asylum in this country. But um, I feel like that curiosity, that sense of, you know, kind of wonder and joy about learning and respecting other places and spaces is a real gift they gave us. So a combination of, you know, moderation was very important in our family and discipline was really important. But at the end of the day, it was like, we don't care what you do as long as you're educated you can grow up and be and do whatever you want. And so here, you know, I walked into the White House, 21, um, and had this incredible kind of really, uh, you know, sense of, you know, my, my parents, the identity they raised us as. Um, and maybe only a child of immigrants can, you know, really say this, and every time you say it, you get emotional, and I certainly do. But this notion, I mean, we were raised as Americans and Muslims, and, you know, faith was a very big, you know, part um, uh, of my childhood, but to travel around the world and to land at airports everywhere from Turkey to Japan to you name it, and to land and have that blue passport, I mean, that, you, you carried this great sense of pride at the country that you represented and, and that we represented. And so I brought all that experience to me um, when I walked into the White House uh, to work for Hillary. And when your family moved to Saudi Arabia, you're in a very different culture. Yeah. And you also emphasize that your parents constantly raised you with a sense that you had choices. Yes. That you were going to be able to be autonomous in your life. How were they able to reinforce that despite a culture that maybe didn't always reflect that. It was, um, it was, you know, you think about it. My mother actually tells the story that when my father said, um, so after he got this diagnosis, they had two options. Uh, my father had been offered two sabbatical positions. One was in Italy and the other was in Saudi Arabia. And before he discovered he was ill, they had decided they were going to go to Rome. And after my father chose Saudi Arabia, and in part because they wanted us to learn about, you know, our culture and our faith and just thought it would be this adventure. It was supposed to just be a year. 
And my mother tells the story that the first time my father says, we're going to go to Saudi Arabia, and I was two, my mother's like, do they even have diapers in that country? Like, what are we doing? And I think about it. I mean, she landed, you know, this is pre the world of, you know, cell phones and, you know, obviously, you know, computers and internet. I mean, she was so isolated and so alone and women could not drive and she had to veil herself when she went outside. I mean, socially, it was a very, very challenging environment. She didn't speak the language. She taught herself Arabic um, to, you know, to communicate with her Saudi students at the university. Um, It was really difficult. And I think it's one of the reasons I did turn to writing and my imagination and um, and, and I created these worlds in my head, and my parents always told us, you can do whatever you wanted, but it was, it was not easy. I mean, certainly it was not easy, and I really commend my mother and my father, but this, they made everything kind of this little adventure, and, um, and we got to leave a lot, too. I think, you know, people often say to me, look, how, you know, how did you you know, deal with that, not being able to drive and having to, you know, be so in such a conservative environment. I mean, I knew I had a way out. I mean, every, we traveled so much and I knew I was going to come home to the the United States in the summers and eventually move back here. I love that I was able to do both, you know, worlds. And you and I talked about this backstage, so I suspect you're going to ask me this. But one of the things I did love about growing up in Saudi Arabia was this notion, and we call it the ummah, which is basically translates to the community, the ever-present community. And what I loved about that kind of environment, it was that there was always a sense of support and you felt like you were part of something much bigger than yourself. And so, you know, I tell the story of, um, fast forward, and I mean, the doctor in Michigan was right. My father's kidneys failed like 10 years, to the day. Um, and he was, uh, had to then go on dialysis treatment. For those of you who know what dialysis is like, it's a very, it's a very invasive, uh, a very a brutal uh, process. And by the way, this was a secret from all of us children. We did not know my father was ill. So even after my father passed away and I was looking at his medical records and when he died, he was 95 pounds. And like, to me, he was, you know, a superhero. He was superhuman. And that's how we experience um, uh, our parents. But I I tell the story of my father, after two years on dialysis, my father actually got on a kidney transplant list back in the United States. And so he gets a call one day and says, you're going to get a kidney, so you have to fly um, to the the U.S. And our very, very close Saudi friends, who are basically family to us, called my mother and said, um, you know, are the kids okay? Do they want to move in with us? And here we are living in Saudi Arabia. We have all this change already. And my my parents are about to leave. And we're like, no, 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 we don't want to come. So my mother makes up this excuse on the phone to our friends and saying, well, the kids have the exams, their exams coming up. And they have their desks and their bookcases and like all their work at home. So it's okay. They don't need to stay with you while we go to New York for the surgery. And she hangs up the phone. And the next morning, there's a knock on the door. And we open the door and it's a moving company. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm here to pick up some desks and like some bookcases. And they did, like they, we moved with our furniture into our family friend's house um, for that period of time that my parents were away. Like it was just a sense of there was always, you know, somebody you could count on um, and you were always part of an extended family. And I really loved and love that. Yeah, I feel like I, I love <clears throat> the story you tell um, that, or perhaps the cautionary tale, uh, to be wary of complimenting your hostess's earrings oh, yes. because the next thing you know, you're going home with them. 
at oh, her yes. insistence. Yes, it's it's a very much a part of the culture. Is yeah. anything that you admire, it must be given. You know, you are your your guest is you know your honored guest, and so you always you always share and give. Yeah. Yeah. Now, faith is just so ever present in mm-hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. You know, from from prayer to fasting to dinners at the White House, and you say at the very end, you know. Muslims have to, in America especially, share stories and truths of, of faith and culture, and it's important. Um, I wonder, as you were sitting down to write this book, was that a top of mind for you? It was a big part of it. You know, I, for me, um, I, 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 I didn't, I had the advantage, it's terrible, I don't know what the right word is, but I had the, the, uh, the advantage of, of coming to the United States in the pre-9-11 world. So when I walked into George Washington University in 1993 and you know, would tell my, um, my friends who had you know, been born and raised in this country um, that I lived in Saudi Arabia, it was, it was funny things like, oh, you know, did you go to school on a camel? And did you live in a tent? And you know, oh my god, are you like Princess Jasmine? And, I mean, Aladdin had just come out in 92, I think. So it was like these little, so it was annoying sometimes, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, offensive. And I was very, like, I was, I kind of liked being different. I liked, you know, being in the White House and people saying, what is this thing that you do that you fast? Explain this. Or you're praying in the conference room, explain. And I, and, and, and I had the advantage of actually walking into a White House at a time when there was a real, um, uh, uh, interest in expanding our relationship with the Muslim world. I mean, we were an active, you know, Bill Clinton was an active, you know, peace negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian territories at a time when it was the closest, I would argue, that we ever got to a proper, uh, uh, you know, peace agreement and traveling all throughout the world. And you had a first lady who was traveling around the world championing women's rights as human rights. So it was kind of, I was a novelty and I, 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 I was very proud of it, but you know, for people who have followed what has happened in our political discourse, and certainly in 2012, I became, I would argue, the appetizer for, you know, the anti-Muslim um, kind of stoking um, in this country, I thought, I just think the average American doesn't even know what I believe. And when I talk to my friends, my Christian friends, and say, well, Jesus is my prophet, and they're like, what are you talking about? You know, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, and the Bible is also a holy book for me, uh, um, as is the Old Testament. I mean, people are always surprised. And so I, what I did, and a lot of my Muslim friends have said this to me uh, now that they've gone through the book, I'm not trying to defend anything. I just try, the entire book is basically, I try to take my reader on a journey. And it's a, you know, it's, I try to make it a show, not tell. It's this is what it's like um, to be in my shoes um, and in my world. And one of the many reasons I, I am excited about the book uh, being, coming onto screen is because I think we still live in a world that I'll, you know, I'll turn on Netflix at night and, um, or any of the streaming services and you see a family on a TV show and they're going into a church and you think, oh, this is so lovely. This is a family that worships together. How wonderful. Um, and you turn on a show and you see a family going into a mosque and all of us, whether it's conscious or subconscious, by the way, I put myself on that list, we are, we are just conditioned to think, oh my God, something really bad's about to happen. Like something's about to get blown up or something horrible is about to happen. And how did we get here? And, I, and we know how we got here. And how to change that you know, discourse and do it in a way that you're just telling the story and 
um, and sharing your life, and that's uh, and that's that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And and you say that when you were at the White House, you were always sort of protected. You were always accepted. Yes. You did not experience, yes. including in the fallout after 9/11, that same ultra hatred yes. toward Muslim yeah. individuals in this country. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I I was I really was. I mean, I lived in a bubble. I mean, to some extent, we all live in a bubble, right? We all live in our own little bubble. But yes, I was I very much um, kind of uh, shielded uh, from a lot of that, which is why in 2012, when everything shifted, and uh, this was um, uh, when uh, Michelle Bachman and uh, several other members of Congress. Uh, it essentially wrote, and I was working at the State Department, um, and wrote a letter uh, to the inspector generals at just about every single agency, including the State Department, suggesting that uh, I be investigated, uh, I mean, essentially accusing me of being a traitor, um, and simply because of my background and, you know, where I was raised and, and because of my faith and, and nothing else, and I was, it was such a shock to my system. But it was just the beginning. I mean, I think the we had to, when I say we, that doesn't include me, but there's a certain segment of uh, uh, our political dialogue that needed to create another, an other. And uh, there was no more convenient an other than Muslim, I mean, Muslims and Muslim Americans. And it became, uh, it worked. I mean, it worked in 2012 with me and, uh, and certainly worked in 2016, yeah. Yeah, the uh, conversation that you described with the Coptic Christian, I believe, was it in the UAE? You were on a trip it was in Egypt. In Egypt, you know, that's right. It, it's, we're sitting here in 2022, and now, you know, you'd have to be living in a hole if you don't, if you have not heard stories about people who full-on believe in, in fake news, full-on believe stories and theories that are just complete fiction and... and completely untrue. And back then, it, it, we were just at the beginning um, uh, of that. So yes, I, I was accused of, uh, you know, uh, essentially whispering in the ear of uh, the Secretary of State and the President of the United States, potentially information that I don't, I don't even know what I was being accused of. And we traveled to Egypt on an official trip, and, and Hillary and I shared the story in the book, and Hillary's there as Secretary of State, and she's sitting across from a group of Christian leaders, and this man <laughs> says to her, well, we're not sure if we can uh, trust your government uh, because of your aid, and we don't know what uh, uh, she's telling you about our community. And, uh, and Hillary, in typical Hillary, is like, oh, you mean Huma? She's right down there. You should talk to her after this meeting. And I, and, 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 and I did. I stayed after the meeting, and I talked to him. And then literally, as I'm having this conversation, I realized all of these lies that he has read on. And he looked at me in, with incredulity. He's like, but all these things on social media, you're saying this is all made up? All made up. And, and again, that was a decade ago. It seems like a lifetime ago. And, but now I think that's normal. I mean, all we lived in 2016, all these things that we thought were utter nonsense and no one was going to believe, we only learned afterwards that um, not only did people believe it, a lot of people uh, believed uh, some of these stories and that, this, you know, that was just one of them. Yeah. Now, I'd love to jump back to how you got to the White House to begin with. Yeah. I know that you, you start off with an internship mm. in the Clinton administration and you were required to work 15 hours a week. Oh, yes. And yeah. you did not. Yeah, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> how quickly did you know that you were the right person for this kind of job. Oh God, I never knew. I, I was not, I didn't know. All I knew is I loved it. I, you know, I went to university in Washington because I wanted to become Christian Amanpour. 
and I'd seen her. I had turned on the TV. CNN International had just arrived in 1992 during the first, you know, Operation Desert Storm, the first Gulf War, second Gulf War, depending on your perspective. But um, and just saw this woman, um, you know, reporting from Baghdad, and she just was. First of all, she looked like she came from my part of the world. She was so smart. She was so, you know, I, I saw her as sort of this, you know, truth seeker, and I just admired her so much. And so I went to study journalism, and then got this internship by accident um, in the White House. I had a friend who was interning for Mike McCurry, and she says, "Well, that's how you become Christian Amanpour. Go in, intern for Mike McCurry." I apply for the internship. I get it. Don't get a job in the press office. I get a job in the first lady's policy office because of my background. And I remember calling my mother and saying, Mom, I don't know, how am I going to become Christian Amanpour in the first lady's policy office? And she said, well, you know, sometimes plan A doesn't work out, but maybe plan B will be, you know, pretty good. And, um, and she was right. And even though I was raised by a father who said a good life is a balanced life, I did not follow that advice. I just fell in love with the work. I just, I, 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 I'm very careful about how I use that word, um, but I, I really became addicted to it. And I was never the best at anything. I mean, there's so many stories in the book of my constant failures. I, I mean, and the, and the attitude in this White House was basically like they tossed you into the deep end and you, ha you either sank or you swam. And, um, and all I knew, I was never the best, I mean, I was, I was not the smartest, I was not the prettiest, I was not the ist of anything. All I knew is that I was prepared to outwork everybody else. And, um, and I think that's one of the reasons, I mean, I really, I mean, I really did succeed. And there's a couple of, you know, crazy stories um, in the book, like the, you know, very first speech I had to staff Hillary for, uh, and I was super nervous, and I, you know, here she is, the first lady. I'm this kid. No one's really told me what to do, and I like carry her speech, and I put it on stage, and um, and and she goes on stage, and I'm at the back of the room because you know that's what you're supposed to do as a staff person, be invisible. And then she's sitting on stage, and all of a sudden she does this, and I thought, okay, this must be really bad. And I approach the stage, and she leans over, and she says, I don't have the right speech. And it was the first time that I felt that from like the tip of my toes, like fire <laughs> up into my head thinking, but that, that's the moment when you know you either like completely fall apart or you say, which is what I said for the very first time that night, um, I said, I got it. I didn't have it, definitely didn't have it. But I <laughs> ran out to the car and um, sure enough, I opened the limousine and there is, while I've been carrying my pristine copy of the speech, there is a speech like with all notes that she had edited the speech on the whole ride from the White House to the venue and I run up and by the time I get back to the stage she's already at the podium and you know she readjusts the pages delivers the speech I expected to be fired by the way when I we walked off uh, the stage and, the, and this tells you so much about Hillary and you know I suspect there are people in the audience who've actually met her and spent some time with her um, and uh, the very first thing she says to me is you should ride in the limousine with me from now on. And it was her way of acknowledging that for this relationship to work, when you are that, the primary person that you needed to know everything, that that, and that's you know, how she solved it. And that was my first time in the limousine, and it's been um, 26 years. So it was all kinds of you know, crazy adventures like that, but uh, I survived. 
And you, you describe this momentarily gutting scene to me as someone who has been terrified of failure my entire life, yeah. where Hillary turns to you during an event. I don't, I'm not sure if she even turns to you, yeah. but she sort of mutters, this is not yeah. working. And you thought the implication was that you were not working yeah. and you would be asked to leave the position. Yeah. How did your conversation with Hillary Clinton after that fact change your relationship? You know, it's funny, Hannah, I don't get to talk about this story very much. Um, and it really is. There, there's two like very significant stories in the book and the other we'll get to in a little bit. But, um, you know, I worked in the White House during the impeachment trial and uh, um, and I ended up writing a chapter about it. And it, was, it wasn't easy to write about, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it um, at the beginning, but I did. Part It's part of the story. But secondly, um, you know, I, for me, it was, you know, here you are having this crazy, you know, larger-than-life job, and then you're working for the first lady who then has to endure what was arguably... <laughs> one of the hardest things any individual has to endure personally, and she had to do it on the world stage. And so for those of us who were the support staff, all we wanted as all of the, you know, the press and the hordes and, you know, the madness of, you know, Whitewater had already been an investigation that had gone on for an extended period of time. Um, we just wanted to protect her, you know, and, and uh, so I, I do share a story of um, in the midst of horrible kind of few weeks, and you know the funny thing is, when you were in it, when you were working at the White House and traveling around the world, and I mean, everything was a mission. Everything was, you know, was about the work that you were doing. And so I would, I would share the story in the book, like you'd see the TV on in the background and watching, you know, the latest, you know, news, breaking news. And to me, it was like an alternate universe because it wasn't relevant to anything, you know, I was doing. And I was a junior staffer, so I wasn't involved in any of the, you know, these, you know, very serious conversations. But I do share a story at the end of a very long week and a very end of a very long day. And clearly all of this pressure is on Hillary. And we go to this event and I have like no clue what I'm doing. And uh, the hostess comes to me and Hillary's about to give a speech. And the hostess comes to me, basic question. Like, does she want dinner? And I don't know the answer. I mean, there's a buffet, all the other guests are going through and they're getting their food and they go sit in the living room and Hillary's about to talk to them. So I go up to Hillary and I, the first lady, and I, you know, I inter interrupt and she seems annoyed that I've interrupted her. I said, Mrs. Clinton, would you like us to make you a plate of dinner? She's like, I'll get it myself. And she goes into this room, this dining room, and everyone is now waiting in the main room for, for, her, to, for her to talk and she picks up this plate and without doing anything, without putting any you know, food in it, she just you know, basically like smacks it back down and says, this is not working. And of course, I think, you know, I have no idea what's going through her head. I assume it's just me, like I, I haven't figured it out. And so we get in the car and we take the motorcade ride back to the White House. And I, I you know, I call my boss through White House signal back then. You know, you had to call an operator and they connect you on your cell phone. And I said, I think I just lost my job. She just said, I'm not working out. And we get to the White House, and um, I don't, I'm so scared. I remember I was shaking the whole time, and I let her go into the South Portico, and an usher comes running out saying, the First Lady is asking for you. And I think, oh, God, like, now this is it. And uh, I go in, you know, biting my cheek, and um, I can't even make eye contact with her. It was, it was such a horrible moment. And I look up, and she said, you know, I just want to apologize for my behavior. And it has nothing to do with you. We're all under so much stress, and I just want to thank you 
for everything that you're doing for me um, and for our country. And she gives me this big hug. And I thought that moment, I mean, just the, her humanity, her sense of empathy. I mean, that's, you know, I, you know, I always, I tell people like I, one of the reasons I feel like I'm pretty good at okay at my job is uh, I was raised by parents who had radical empathy and that is something Hillary Clinton has in spades, is that radical empathy. Like, here she is, the entire world is judging her for every single move she makes, and there's this 21-year-old kid who has no idea what they're doing, and she takes a minute to say, it's going to be okay, and we're in this together. And I, I, that was the day that it was kind of, I will, you know, I'll do anything this woman, you know. It was, an, it was a, kind of our breakthrough moment, and it was an incredible one. Thank you for letting me tell that story, because I haven't, you know, I haven't been able to tell it very much. Yeah, I love that yeah. story. And to that point, um, yeah. being devoted to Hillary Clinton, at various stages, as your role shifted, working for uh, either, you know, the presidential candidate Hillary Clinton or Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, you have a moment where you're talking about what your next role is going to be, and you always demure to yeah. whatever is best for the group and yeah. for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. What do you think is your motivation to put the group above your own personal ambition or desires in that moment? You know, I think it's a, maybe it's a little bit of a generational thing, and, and you said, and you're right about being devoted to her, but I think in the end of the day, um, and I recognize I'm speaking to a, a very sophisticated audience in that, you know, in terms of public discourse and, and public policy, you guys are all experts here. Um, it, it was, it's, it, this notion of something being about more than just you. And I sit here as somebody who I'm 47, you know, every couple of hours my colleagues or my staff, you know, text me and says, you're not tweeting enough, or you're not on Instagram enough, or you're not, you know. And I don't, I'm kind of ambivalent, frankly, about all of that. And I try to explain this, especially when I travel overseas. I've spent most of this year overseas um, talking about the book. Very hard to explain to people, but that feeling that you had, and I, you know, had the great privilege to be on the 2000 Senate campaign, the 2006 um, you know, re-elect um, the 2008 presidential campaign and the 2016 presidential campaign. That feeling that you have when you are in a space like this, when you're at a gymnasium, when you're in somebody's home, whether it was in Iowa, New Hampshire, or any of the early states, and you're, you're there on behalf of a campaign or a mission. And when I try and count the stories um, you know, essentially, you know, I, I considered it a privilege that you are carrying people's hopes and fears and aspirations and beliefs, and you're carrying that. When you work those rope lines, and you're taking numbers down meticulously, and then we got in those long limousine rides, and the first thing Hillary would ask is, that woman, Jane, who had this problem, and how are we going to figure that out? You know, that sense of, of, of reward and possibility that if your candidate wins, you can do something. I, can't, I don't know anything else that feels as fulfilling. And so for me, part of it was, and yes, I love my boss, and I, you know, yes, I, but in part, I think this is her problem too, is like she's not one of those candidates who's like, oh, I am, you know, I'm amazing, and I need this for me. She's always been, and maybe that's one of the challenges she's had, you know, she's not the most naturally charismatic candidate because it's all about the job. 
it's much harder. The minute she you know, decides that she wants to run for something, her approval numbers go down. You give her the job and people love what she does. I mean, the, her Senate approval ratings when she was Secretary of State, it, it, she's a capable person. So it really is about the work. And maybe, Hannah, a little bit of that is how I am too. I, I don't, I'm kind of agnostic about the me part and wanting to be ambitious. Maybe I shouldn't be this way. But I miss that. People always say, what do you miss about Bob? That is, that's what I miss. I miss the conversations. Um, you know, I don't miss the lifestyle and like not sleeping or seeing my kid. I, mean, I miss so many years of my ch uh, child's life. I miss that. I, I miss the human connection and the interaction in the sense that maybe I could do something to help somebody. Yeah. And I have to know, the Civics 101 in me has to know, when you were described as a uh, top advisor and aide to mm. Hillary Clinton, what does that mean? What were, you, what were you doing on a daily basis? What was your job? You know, and that's, I think one of the challenges of having such an amorphous job, I mean, it's, it really became this, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of air traffic controller. I mean, so much of it, you know, I always said that in 2008, if I was the manager of anything, I was the manager of sanity because so much of it on a daily basis, you're just juggling 100 balls. You know, what, what do you tell her when, how to take somebody through a day, how you deal with your hosts, how you figure out, you know, what the right thing to say is. So it's actually, it is very hard to describe um, uh, the job that somebody like, you know, somebody like I did, but in part was, uh, a, a, you know, a sense of, getting um, your, you know, ultimately your message across every single day, trying to think long-term, trying to, you know, think short-term. So it's, it, it really is a little bit of everything, but it is, it's, it's hard to describe. I mean, for me, I wanted her to be able to go out there and just do the best job that she can. And then we're, you know, we're the, you know, we're the feet beneath the duck, you know, just paddling to make sure that everything is, um, is smooth. And also for me, a big part of it, I tell uh, young people who work for me now and you're, who do what we call advance. I know everyone here knows what advance is. I had to describe what an advanced person is when I was in Saudi Arabia earlier. But, um, you know, I would say to, my, I say to my staff now, when you go somewhere and you're negotiating for an event, it doesn't matter if you work for Hillary, if you work for Barack Obama, or if you work for Microsoft. If somebody has a bad experience, they're not going to say you, Jane Smith, are terrible. They're going to say Hillary Clinton sucks or Microsoft sucks. You, you know, so, so much of it is you really are an ambassador um, for what you represent, and that's at least um, how I was raised. And so you can see, even 25 years later, I still struggle to figure out uh, how to describe what the job is that I did. Yeah. And I wonder, having <laughs> spent so much of your young adult years utterly devoted to this individual and this cause and this party, mm. How were you able to preserve yourself? Well, I, you know, I was, I lived a very, I didn't, I lived a very, for those of you, as you, if you read, end up reading the book, I mean, I, I, everything was work. I mean, I, I didn't have relationships. I didn't see my family. I didn't, I, I actually write about the fork in the road moment um, that uh, when 1997, I get a call, I'm at a family wedding in Manhattan, uh, this fairy tale wedding, my cousin was getting married. And I get a phone call from the White House, and, um, and my supervisor calls and says, do you want to go to Argentina to advance a trip uh, for the First Lady and the President? I was so green, I didn't even know what it meant. And, um, and I'm thinking, and, and it meant I would have to miss the wedding. I would leave in the middle of, you know, of, the, uh, of the wedding and uh, get on a plane and go to Buenos Aires. 
And I didn't even stop to think of it, and I, that's my fork in the road moment. I mean, I had one path right in front of me, you know, this notion, this future of family and kids and, you know, or this. And I didn't even know what was down this other road. No, no idea. All I knew is I wanted it. And, um, and so for me, I spent two decades of, of work being uh, my priority. And I, I really, um, and I, I wouldn't change a thing, but um, having a rebalance. I mean, my diet was horrible. I mean, I literally had like 15 cups of coffee a day. I survived on snack bars. And then I'd go to dinner and I would have, you know, two orders of entrees and four desserts, you know, it was so, it was a really unhealthy, it was a really physically uh, unhealthy extra, uh, existence. So I'm healthier now at 47 than I was at 37, for sure. <laughs> and I wonder, was there a point at which you made the conscious choice to invest some time in, in love and marriage and family? Was there a point at which this other pursuit was not scratching every itch? No, you know, I lived in this very, going back to the bubble experience, I mean, I, I, I was, I often in New York, um, you know, I, I had an active social life, but I never, um, I didn't date very much at all. I mean, I, I ended up with Anthony in large part because he pursued me so aggressively, and he, we were friends for a long time first before um, it became anything else. But I mostly ran from men. It was a, it was one of those, like, we'd go to these dinner parties and I would be the woman who was invited to talk about politics and foreign policy. And then, like, everyone else left with somebody else. And I, you know, went home to work or to my hotel room to get ready for a trip to New Hampshire. Like, it, I, it wasn't, I didn't see myself. And I was kind of agnostic about getting married. And, like, I figured it would happen one day. But I was definitely, in, I was in no rush. Yeah. And I want to make sure we leave time for this question, so I'm going to ask it yeah. now. You were able to bear witness to Hillary Clinton uh, securing the uh, nomination for her party. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the, I, I got this invitation, I said yes right away, because, um, thank you for asking me that question. I, had I knew <laughs> Because it was one mile down the road where she made history. Um, and, and I, like, I actually see that, um, I mean, it's, it's just not honored more in, in some ways because that, so this is, I'm taking us back to the, for those of us who remember the 2008 presidential election, I certainly do, it's seared into my memory. Um, but when Hillary Clinton got in, it was a very, very crowded primary. Um, it, you know, she was the front runner, and it that you know the, she it came with all the advantages and the disadvantages uh, of her being the front runner, and um, you know for, for those for those of you to remember, I mean Joe Biden was running and John Edwards was running. I mean it was a it was a big, um, and we knew uh, we had research when she uh, got in. Uh, uh, into the campaign that it was going to be hard for a woman. It's one of the reasons why she didn't, you know, she, she did the whole I'm in it to win it and kind of running as the most qualified candidate. And uh, here was uh, then Senator Barack Obama, just just this extraordinary, um, inspiring, you know, brilliant uh, candidate. And so we're off to the races and uh, we worked really hard, invested a lot of time in Iowa. And, uh, and then she has this stunning loss. I mean, stunning uh, Loss where she didn't come second, but she came third. 
after John Edwards. So Barack Obama won, and John Edwards came second, and Hillary came third. And the entire time leading up to this very, very long, very, very brutal campaign schedule, um, with this kind of, sh like, we were reeling. And I, I recount the story in the book of, of, of how shocked uh, we all were. So immediately she does her concession speech, which she had not anticipated giving in, in Iowa. And we immediately get on a plane and uh, land in New Hampshire. Um, at three o'clock in the morning, and you know, for last thing she says to me before I leave her in her hotel room is, "What, what do you think happened?" And we were all trying to uh, un unpack what happened, and uh, and it would be a while before um, you know we figured it out because you know we believed <laughs> we had the candidate that was the most qualified, we had the candidate who had worked the hardest, we had the candidate, and, and knowing that, and this is I'm going on a side note here a little bit, but I talk about this a lot in 2016, knowing that we also had to deal with, you know, what we felt was this unrelenting kind of, uh, you know, misogyny and sexism. And I got to tell you, back in 2008, none of us knew how to deal with it. We just didn't. That would included us. We had no idea. So people would, you know, make jokes about, oh, her jackets are too long, or why does she wear pink all the time, or her hair doesn't look good today, and we would just laugh. Or, you know, you know commentators like Tucker Carlson could go on TV, could literally go on TV and say, the minute I see Hillary Clinton, I'm, I involuntarily cross my legs. And we all laugh. We're like, oh, ha-ha, like, because there was no outrage. There was no you can't talk about a woman candidate in this way, it will not be tolerated because we didn't know how to deal with it at that, certainly at that level, we didn't know how to deal with it. So we land in New Hampshire at three o'clock in the morning, you know, January 7th at 2008, and, um, uh, and, and we are basically preparing to lose. I mean, it's now like, we, we just didn't know what was gonna happen. In New Hampshire at that point, at that point, oh my God, like everything went south. And so here we are about 11 points down in New Hampshire. And, uh, and for those of you who go way back to, you know, New Hampshire, Bill Clinton, 1992, like it was, you know, he was the comeback kid uh, after New Hampshire. And so it was such like an emotionally brutal um, experience. And I remember slogging through that first day and um, uh, ending up at a rally, in, if I remember correctly, in Manchester. And Wes Clark, who had run for president <clears throat> himself, we show up at an event and we're all kind of super depressed. And I said, Gen you know, and he comes off stage and he's like really energized. And I said, General, how does it feel? And I, because that was my normal question, I was like, oh, why did I ask him? And he puts his hands on my shoulder and he says, Huma, she is going to win here. You can just feel it. And I'm looking at him like he's crazy. And, but he did, I mean, he had been in New Hampshire, he was doing, and it, there was something that you, you just, you, you just can't, you can't explain it. But if you're in politics, you, you, you know, you can feel it. So, gave us a, kind of a little, a, a little bump, but um, one of the reasons I share the story is that, you know, the day had been so long, and we get up at five o'clock in the morning, and we basically got this message from our campaign manager, which is, you should be prepared to lose here. And, um, which nobody knew at the time. Obviously, publicly, we weren't saying this, obviously. And um, we end up at Cafe Espresso, Espresso down the road in Portsmouth. And um, I was on the bus because we had just gotten this devastating news. And I got on the phone with a few of her campaign advisors and to figure out what are we going to do, like what, New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada and all this. And I get a knock on the door. Somebody comes running out and knocks on the bus door and says, we need you. She's crying. 
And I literally look at this advanced person, what, I mean, who is crying? What are you talking about? Because I mean, you cannot show emotion as a woman, oh my God, in politics. And long story short, um, you know, a woman had, had got up at the cafe and, and said, you know, this must be so hard. How do you do it? Marianne. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, she does. And I really, I mean, Marianne should get credit. I mean, it was that he, a moment, that just human moment of how, that was the, people forget. The question was, how do you do it? This must be so hard. And it was, I mean, as cheesy as people might think this is, I mean, she basically said, I do it because I care. I mean, I know I have this enormously privileged life, and I, I, I see all these problems in our country, and I know I can fix it. And that was it. And that moment, that brief moment, that emotional moment, thank you, Marianne. And it really ch changed uh, the tide. And so that, I mean, sure enough, fast forward to everyone knows history, here, um, she won. She won New Hampshire. And it was extraordinary. It was nobody. And she did that. And this state did that for her. And, um, and it was, I mean, and the very next morning, the first question she just get asked is, how do you explain your failures as opposed to how do you explain? She made history that night. By the way, no one has done it since. Nobody. No woman has done it since. And I, that's why like, I, I have such a... And so we, both of us, have such deep, um, I'm sorry I'm rambling about this, but such deep kind of gratitude and, and affection and, and love and, um, because it was done here. Um, and I, and I just, anyway, so um, here I am. And that's why in 2016, when people were like, Bernie's gonna win, do not even go, do not even campaign in New Hampshire. She was basically like, I don't, I don't, like she campaigned here. We came here so many times. We knew we weren't going to win. I mean, we did know in 2016 that Senator Sanders was going to win, and he did. But it was I, I, the, the respect that this state gave to me in 2008, I will never be able to repay. And so I am going to go, and I am going to campaign, and I don't care if I win or lose. And it was, that, was a, that was a passion campaign. So anyway I, anyway, I love being here. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. It, it's really, it's only in New Hampshire that oh. you can begin to tell a story and someone says, well, Marianne. Yeah, yeah. You know, Hello. Yeah. And then someone across the way. Somebody yeah. needs to give me Marianne's number or like email. Seriously, if they have it. I, I, I want to. Pass away. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Oh, I would, I would love to send them a note. I, I would love, if somebody, ha I, I, would, I think Hillary would love to send the, uh, reach out to them. Um, also, thank you for sharing that. I didn't know that. Hmm. It's so interesting listening to you speak. I think it is it's so easy to, to believe that the world of politics is, is not necessarily full of hope or joy or belief. And I feel as though you are telling us that indeed it, it, that's actually real. Do you feel like that's a necessary component to get through yes. all the rest of it? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think what has changed in, in our political discourse um, rather dramatically is that, it, it, you know, often you just have to say crazy just uh, on both sides. I, you, know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying one side or another. Like, you, you, you know, you break through, particularly in the world of social media, um, when you say these uh, just outrageous things. But when you take away all of that, 
who is actually getting the work done and how you get things done, it's a whole different thing. I mean, that's why, you know, every time uh, somebody questions what this administration is doing, and certainly, you know, President Biden, I said, look, look at what he has accomplished, what he did um, in his first year and how many of those promises uh, that he's kept. And, um, and that, so yes, the short answer, but you have to have, I think you have to be radically optimistic. Like I'm defiantly optimistic because I think it is the only way forward. Um, and and, and I, the other thing I always you know, tell friends of mine who've lived in this country, I know what it's like to not live in a democracy. And so it, it, <laughs> there is something extraordinary about living in this democracy. And so to protect that and to prevent it from essentially um, crumbling at the seams in some way needs to be, like we have to fight for it. Um, and so no, I am optimistic. And you describe that your father had an ideal of yeah. America. And you ask the question in your book, is Americanness big enough to encompass different ethnicities, different religions? What is your answer to that question? I, I think I'm still seeking that out. I mean, the short answer is yes, uh, in the ideals, uh, of uh, um, you know, our founding fathers, absolutely. But you know, I do share. Even when I was, you know, studying American history in uh, college, uh, well, I didn't study American history in, in growing up in the Middle East. But uh, you know, I knew that our history was fraught with some fairly. I remember just reading it as a young person and just being shocked. Um, uh, but. That's why it, we're, it's the ever-present, we're constantly, that's part of what the beauty of democracy is. You're constantly searching for the, a better and more perfect union, which is why we're never static. And that's why elections are important. That's why, you know, preserving the, um, you know, preserving elections and done in a free and fair way and allowing everyone to vote is so important. And people, and especially young people, you know, I, I spent a lot of time at college campuses. It's one of my favorite um, things to do because I, I, I feel like I talk to a lot of young people who find all of this discourse so unpleasant, so their response is to just tune it out. And I constantly tell the story of Kirsten Gillibrand. I mean, you know, she is now... Uh, you know, the junior senator from the state of New York, and she tells the story of being a young attorney on her way to making partner in Manhattan many years ago and showing up at an event for Senator Hillary Clinton and standing in the back of the room, and Hillary basically said, if you have a problem with something that you see happening in your local government, federal government, and you think you have a solution, it is your responsibility to step in, step up. Like, then don't complain. <laughs> if you're not going to do anything about it. And Kirsten said that was like her aha moment. And, you know, she ran for Congress. She won a House seat, and then she was appointed. And now she sits in Hillary Clinton's seat. Like, I, you, how do we raise, you know, this whole next generation to say, this is the world you're inheriting. You have to participate um, for it to, to be better. Because, uh, by the way, you're inheriting some, you know, fairly serious, you know, trauma. <laughs> It, it might yeah, make you feel work. better to know that my co-host and I go and speak with students who very much know that yeah. and are very much far more politically engaged than I ever was really as a young person. Great and so, wonderful to hear. Yeah, yeah. 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Important. I agree. Um, now, so much of this book, 
you know, sort of feels like you in your own words, because at a point in your life, you went from being a person in the background to becoming a public persona. And, and that's in part because of your, the actions of your ex-husband and you're just thrust into the, the media spotlight and put through the ringer. Um, I really want to know, given, you know, you've talked a little bit about misogyny and sexism. Mm. Do you believe that your experience and what was put on you would have been the same if you were the husband of a candidate, of a mayoral candidate, if you were the male aide and staffer of a prominent politician? No, I, I, I don't, but I can only, I, I mean, I'm guessing, but the, you, know, you can only live your own reality. I, I do think that um, one of the reasons I am able to sit a year later and still talk about the book, and um, because I do think the stories of what I had to go through in my personal life connected, and sadly, with a lot of people, men and women, but particularly women, uh, and it, it's, it, it was, you know, I've been living this a decade, where um, people call me or stop me on the street and, and say they're going through something very similar, and, uh, and, and I, I, you know, I, I t take it as a, you know, a, a, I'm very humbled that people think they can trust me in that way, but uh, yeah, uh, the thing that I've learned, I mean, I have two chapters in the book. One's called Elephant in the Room, and one is called uh, Shame, Shame, Go Away. Um, sure, yeah, when these things, when you have to do it in public, and, and look, we just happen to have to do it in the news, but plenty of people do it, and they, they have to do it in their own worlds, and their own families, and their own communities, and it's just as horrible. I mean, this notion of, you know, walking into a room and feel like everyone, you know, stops talking or, like, stares at you sideways or has judged you for your choice, whether it's to leave or to stay, um, and, and it's really hard, and, uh, and I, you know, I chose, uh, I chose to stay with Anthony the first time, and in large part because, you know, I was carrying his child. I mean, my, I was not even, I wasn't even 12 weeks pregnant, um, and here I was, this uh, little girl who lost her father and didn't have a choice about when her father was taken away from her, and uh, I wasn't going to do that to my son. Uh, I wanted to give him every opportunity to grow up in a house um, with two parents, and so when you're, but when you're in it, you're just kind of dealing um, with the incoming. But I have had, a, you know, I, I in the end made the choice that was right for me, um, and uh, and that's what I I, I say to everyone uh, who comes to me. I have stunned, sadly, at how much I, you know, I, I just hear from people who can relate to that part of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I wonder, do you ever think about the fact that everything that you went through? It, it, as you said, it's happening in homes across the country, yeah. various versions of this. Most people, their lives are not national news. Were you at all in that moment, in the many moments, um, as your personal life was national news? Well, how did you hold it all together? That's actually my question. Well, look, when you're, I think when you're in, so number one, I was very good at compartmentalizing, and I was really good at my job. So for me, it was like I would just turn a switch on, go to work, and I knew I was excellent at, you know, what I did. That, that helped me get through it. And my faith was a big part of it. You know, I write about Islamic prayer in the book, and what Islamic prayer basically is, is it's basically a meditation. It's like it, you, you're just, you step back. It's just a conversation between you and a higher power. And it forces you to, like, take everything out of, you know, your immediate kind of, Intent, and just reflect on your, you know, your actions, your deeds, and your intentions. I always found that um, really helped me. 
Um, so for me it was, and I think just being raised, I think it's one of the reasons I re did write about my childhood. I mean, I, uh, it was the way I was raised. It was, you know, this notion of, I mean, if you have your health, <laughs> I mean, everything else is pretty much, um, and so I think about it, I had a father who every single day was just privileged, was just thrilled to be alive. So I, you know, this was a mental health. We didn't know that, though, at the time, too. I mean, that's the other thing. I think back then, the kind of compulsive behavior and doing it online, I mean, Anthony was at the, you know, really, I would argue the very first, I mean, Twitter and Facebook, these channels by which he was able to fall into this pattern that he fell into uh, 12 years ago, he didn't, he, it was all triggered by these portals existing. You know, he didn't have an, a, a, a way to do this before. So everything was all new. We were trying to figure it out. We didn't, uh, you know, I, and I, I was so ignorant. I, I just thought, well, why can't you just knock this off? Like, what's the big deal? And because I grew up with such, you know, discipline and moderation and restraint, and so I couldn't understand people who could not. And it took me a very, very long time, you know, to work through that, and, you know, a lot of therapy. And growing up in a world and a, you know, a generation, my mother was, I mean, therapist, are you kidding? You don't talk to strangers about, you know, your personal problems. I mean, that's, that's the household uh, I was raised in. So, yeah, it took a lot to get through that. I come from an Irish Catholic background, oh, so not so talking can, to strangers about your problems yes, is yes, kind of what you, you do. Can, you yeah, can relate. how you get you through. Can, <laughs> yes, you um, can relate. I do want to make sure, uh, before we end, these Wonderful, wonderful individuals have come here to ask you some questions as yeah. well. I want to get to the audience here. Um, I really like this question. Um, whoever asked, thank you. Aside from Hillary, what woman do you think would make a good president? Oh my gosh. Well, Kamala Harris. Um, you know, I want to, uh, I, I want to acknowledge that we do have a female vice president who's a pretty extraordinary woman and leader and, and having to deal with, she's inherited everything Hillary had to deal with uh, when she was running for president. Um, but I, honestly, I have to say, just about every woman, all the women, um, who ran for president in 2020. I mean, they were all excellent qualified candidates. And so we, we don't have a dearth of talent uh, with female candidates. We just have a, you know, a, a problem with electing women uh, as commander in chief, which is a real, uh, it, it's a real challenge. I, I think it's gonna be a while. I don't hate to be the person who says it, but I think it's gonna be, this is a conscious and subconscious. You know, people say to me all the time, like, how do you, you know, how do you deal, um, you know, with men and all this bad behavior? I mean, for me, I think my responsibility as the mother of a son is how do I raise him not just to respect women, but to not fear their power? Because that's, that's the only, to me, it's the only way we are going um, to have progress in that space. I'm with you. I feel like I can, I can be biased in that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's research. I mean, there's yeah. research that shows that we can, it's much easier for women to run for Congress than it is for them to run for governor or mayor because as an executive, it's hard for us to, when you close our eyes, um, and a vision. You know, I tell the story in the book about when somebody called, uh, a Hollywood director called me in 2016 and said, oh, I need to help Hillary, you know, do media training to be better. And I said, okay, give me an example of what other woman you think she should emulate. Like, who do you think she should be like to be good? 
And uh, he, he, without hesitation, he says, oh, Bill Clinton. Hmm. Okay, great. Excellent. Amazing. Like once in a generation communicator, a guy, anybody else. And uh, the, his only other person he could think of was Barack Obama. And my point is that even after that, I mean, my point even to him was you can, there is no model, right? Because she, I guess, was the model and is the model. And, um, and how sad is it that in 2020, after everything we went through in 2016, after who we elected, and, and, what the, and this sort of this explosion uh, of movement and energy and excitement, and in 2020, I mean, what does that say about our country that of all the women who ran, that nobody could, was able to win a primary or a caucus? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I happen to believe that this is a generational shift, that we have to do this intentionally uh, as parents and leaders. I, I do sometimes hear from young people that their their greatest hope is that certain people in power are just going to die eventually, and then they will oh, yeah, just yeah, sort of yeah. rise up. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing I, I'm also very <laughs> sensitive about, and I do this especially when I'm overseas, is I do want to remind people that when people say, well, you didn't have the energy and all that, like, way more people voted for her than voted for her opponent. So, in ter- I mean, I mean if, we, if we elected our president's using the popular vote, she would be in her second term right now, I would argue. Yeah, um, the, the thing that irks me is when people say, the, oh, you didn't have the energy and enthusiasm. It's like, well, not really. Um, uh, Just didn't want it enough is my favorite joke of that essay. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if we change the Electoral College, which I think we should, but I don't think it's going to happen, um, it, we would be in a different world. Yeah. Now, one final question here from an audience member. I really enjoy oh, this are because... We, that's it? We don't have more questions from the, the audience? The lights here are telling... Oh, I've got oh. plenty of questions, but, but oh, the lights dictate our time. questions from the audience? Oh. <laughs> well, this, I think this is a great question because you actually yeah. you speak to how, how very much public service and being a civil servant felt like your calling and, and felt like yeah. the, the ultimate thing to devote yourself to. Um, a member of the audience asks, how do you envision the future of public service? Poll workers, teachers voter registrars, et cetera? I think that it is all about passing that passion on to young people, which is why I'm happy to hear that you say that college students are, that you've spoken to are are really motivated. Because, I I mean, I even see it in New York. When I I go vote in Manhattan and poll workers are always, you know, it's always older. Like how, I want to make it exciting to young people to be part of, you know, take them along for the ride. It's and show what you can accomplish when you participate and that it's, and that the whole is so much better than the individual. I mean, I write, and I know we're, we're running out of time, but um, you know, I write in the book about really getting to a very, very low, very, very bad place in my life in you know, post 2016. I, for some part, you know, took, felt very responsible for her loss. And, and this notion of, you know, really being prepared to just, you know, I, I had some very dark thoughts. And that, was two, that wasn't so long ago, it was in 2019. And I wrote the book, when, you know, the book, a lot of the writing the book was therapy. I tell all young people, by the way, to write their story. I mean, I think the act of writing is, and storytelling is so, so powerful. And frankly, being in politics. What is being in politics? It's telling a story, right? Ultimately, it's telling a story. And to now be this person in 2022 and to feel this much joy and satisfaction and sense of just possibility and, um, 
and hope uh, is, uh, I mean, like if I can do that, like, I, I really do feel like it's, it's, it's possible for, for anybody. And so maybe politics isn't my future, but I, um, I do feel very hopeful about the future and about our country. Um, and I just think a big part of it is this, is just being in community together again and, and having conversations and not yelling and screaming at each other. I do, I have to ask you, because I think so many young people really don't think politicians care at all about them, in part because they can't vote under a certain age, right? Their demographic maybe doesn't matter. Mm. Are they at all wrong? I think some people are in it just for the platform, absolutely. I mean, I would, you know, um, but I think there are player, there are the vast majority, and that's the thing, you don't necessarily know their names because the names that break through are the, on both sides are, are often the ones that are most, and then you have unicorns, and I think that's one of the things about, certainly my, my party, the Democratic Party, we like, we fall in love with, you know, with the candidate. You know, we just, you know, I, I, I remember when I would go in and listen to Bill Clinton speak in the 90s, and I would be in the back, I'd be right, I'd be back row, and watch him give a speech, and I would think he was talking to me. Like, that is how he communicated. It was a, you were in conversation with Bill Clinton when he was speaking, for those of you who might remember him speaking. And when I worked, um, you know, in the Senate and saw Senator, then Senator Obama, oh my God. I, I mean, he transferred, anything felt possible when he gave a speech. And so to have, you reckon you have to have that mad. I mean, they were magic, and and it is impossible. It is possible to have that magic, but there are so many candidates. Forget you know running for president, you know state local elections who are doing some incredible incredible things, and I think they should all be honored. It's the work we're doing uh, through Hillary's PAC, um, that very very actively working with a lot of these other you know candidates, secretaries of state, and gubernatorial candidates, and house candidates. Um, there's a lot of good work and good people and well-intentioned uh, public servants out there who should be honored. Yeah, state and local government, everybody. So yes, that's where it's at. It is. That 100%. is where the power is. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I. Well, we should. I have to ask this last question from an audience member, and perhaps you've already described it, but um, someone wants to know what your most memorable moment with Hillary is so far. Memorable moment. This is, oh, you're stumping me. Um, well, I mean, in the book, I do write the, I do write the 2008 New Hampshire primary um, because th that was, you know, as a young woman, maybe the most inspired I ever was. And then the 2016, when she won to be on that floor um, in Philadelphia, when it was official, you know, first time, and that she was our nominee. I mean, the pounding on the floor, that, I mean, I would say those two moments. It really, you felt like you, you witnessed history. And by the way, I mean, we also believed she was gonna win. I mean, it was a very different sort of psychological uh, and, and mental and emotional. So I would say those two moments. Yeah. yeah. And you know, you, did, you describe with such passion and joy your life serving these pursuits. Are you just as satisfied now that you are not doing that same job? I have a lot. I have a lot of personal joy and satisfaction. I mean, I get to work out. I eat healthy. I get to be with people I love. Um, I get to see my girlfriends. Um, 
I, all that, I can see my family. All of that is amazing. Um, and I'm, I'm still seeking what it is I'm going to do when I grow up. It's a very different kind of, <laughs> it's a very different kind of, and it's exciting and I have all these projects and I have all these balls in the air. But it is, yeah, no, it's, um, it's different. And it's still a mystery to me. I'm, I'm, I'm still searching. I think that's, that's wonderful. Life, I do too. Just keep yeah. living life, right? Yeah. They, they say, you know, you might as well stop once you stop being excited or wondering what's next. So, Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, told, I made a promise myself in 19 when I le we left the White House, the morning I woke up and did not want to go to work uh, was the day I was going to give notice. And that hasn't happened yet, thankfully. Homa Abedin, thank you yeah, no, so thank very you much. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. Seriously. Thank you. I, I just, I feel like this is a great example of a New Hampshire event. Yeah, amazing. You were in conversation with our audience here, everyone engaged. Thank I'm just you. like, once again, I am reminded of what this state is. Thank you all so much for being here, for engaging with Mama. This was Thank wonderful. You. Thank you so much. Really. Thank you. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. I want to say some special thank yous before we wrap up here. Music Hall Executive Director Tina Sautel. Thank you, Tina. New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO Jim Schachter. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Uh, New Hampshire Public Radio Producer Sarah Plored. Sarah is backstage, and Sarah is wonderful, and Sarah makes this all happen. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Music Hall Production Manager Jana Morris. Jana. The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer Ian Martin. Music director and, excuse me, musical director and band Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Bob Lord and Dreadnought saying it into the mic. Thank you both so Thank much. Uh, the Music Hall literary producer Brittany Wasson and writers on a New England stage interviewer. That would be me, Hannah McCarthy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all Thank so you. very much. This was wonderful.